Welcome back. So schedule reminder, uh, Matt Keeter did a lovely recitation. Uh, he wrote Anemone, and then the successor to Anemone is Lib5, which is very, very interesting for functional representation geometry modeling. So lovely recitation about that. Um, uh, I, I think, I forget who asked, but somebody asked about a recitation with Saba and we turn that into a K-12 recitation. So we're gonna have uh, Saba on New View, um, Stephanie on Maker Ed, and Sherry Lassiter on Scopes next Monday on K-12 Maker Education that I think a lot of people are interested in. This will be a nice recitation. This week is scanning and printing, back to electronics next week for design. Uh, this week, the group assignment is to test the design rules of your 3D printer. Individual one is to print an object you can't make subtractively. And a separate assignment is to scan an object. If you want, you can connect those, but you don't need to. Uh, so today is about the distinction between additive and subtractive. Uh, at a distance, you might have thought Fab Labs were 3D printing labs and Fab Academy was about 3D printing. The goal of this week is to learn why 3D printing is useful and also why you might have heard me say, I don't like 3D printing. 3D printing is useful, but it's also oversold. Um, you know, I, at the current state of development, um, a, a good mental model for what we're going to cover is um, if you take like this picture, um, there was a vision of the push button kitchen of the future. And in fact, in your kitchen, you still have a stove and um, a toaster. In the same way, you have many different machines in your fab lab. One is the 3D printer and it has a role. And that's evolving, but today you need to learn about all the machines. So there are many different claims, but broadly you, it's, it's fair to credit 3D printing to Chuck Hull, um, who invented stereolithography. And he, here's an, and he was one of the founders of what became 3D systems. And so that was in 1983 versus subtractive machining which uh, this is from the birth of that in 1952. Um, this is a link to curriculum material from Ohad, from Fab Lab in Israel. And he's traveling right now. Um, he has a leading role at Stratasys and he'll join next week's review to go over a number of his lessons in 3D printing. So why 3D print? Uh, this is a link to a lovely project, um, Christoph. Uh, and I don't know him. If anybody knows him, I'd like to meet him. He's a Swiss watchmaker and um, he's a fan of 3D printing. And this is his completely 3D printed um, watch. And so this is a nice example of why you might want a 3D print. One of the things it does is you're adding material. When you made the PCB or laser cut, you removed material. Here you're adding material. And so one of the benefits of 3D printing is it makes complexity much more accessible. 
that you can add materials selectively and create tremendous geometrical complexity in what you design. A key one is access. Let's say you wanted to make a nested bearing or an axle. Um, if you do it subtractively, if there's places the tool can't get into, you need to make the parts separately and then attach them. With 3D printing, because the, you're building from the inside out, if you want to have um, Uh, if you wanted to have, say, an axle going through a shaft, um, uh, subtractively, you'd have to make them separately, but it would be a problem, for example, if you had end caps here. But when you're 3D printing at a, a layer at a time, the inside is exposed, so you can build the inside along with the outside, so it comes out with the axle and the shaft. So access to parts of the design is a second reason. And the third one is waste, that um, you're adding material where you want it. So rather than pulling a lot of material away, the vision is you just add material where you need it. So those are reasons to 3D print. And that's why it's a very important tool in your lab. But there are many, many, many constraints. So um, this is a gallery of, um, yeah, oh, sorry, this is one other thing. Um, this is a test part and done by one of my students, which I'll talk about. Um, this is a gallery of failure. Um, 3D printers aren't like, say, a photocopier that always does the same thing. There's a lot that can go wrong. So one of the most common processes is FDM, where you extrude a filament. And it's a painful process where you start the job running, you go away, and you come back to the machine, and there's a tangle of filament that didn't stick because the temperature is wrong or the filament uh, has degraded. Um, Laser sintering can fail to bind and your part delaminates. Um, stereolithography based on the optical path or the resin can fail to fuse and you get a gooey mess. And so it, 3D printers don't automatically work perfectly. Uh, just because it's a 3D printer and you can press print, there's a lot that can go wrong with them. So print failures is one issue. Um, one is materials. Uh, there's a limit to the materials you can print. It's slowly expanding. Um, ABS is a common plastic, high-impact polystyrene. Um, there are acrylics. One of the best materials for 3D printing is uh, PLA, polylactic acid. Uh, PLA is plant-based. And so uh, Adrian Boyer, the founder of RepRap, nicely likes to describe it as PLA is carbon negative, because when you print with it, you're actually locking up more carbon than you used to print. So that's a friendly material. But there's a wide range of materials that you can't 3D print. Um, high performance conductors are hard to print, um, a number of electronic materials. There's research projects, but it's hard to print uh, reinforced fibers. That's still emerging. So it's a limited material set. Um, 
depending on the print technology, there's a limit to the resolution that um, uh, typical 3D printers can't get down to the feature size that you did last week when you were machining. Um, State-of-the-art ones um, can approach that or go beyond it, but typical 3D printers are limited in the feature size. Um, everything you do is slow. There's research on speeding it up, but typical 3D printers um, might take hours to produce something where laser cutters can do it in minutes. Uh, one of the banes of commercial 3D printers is they try to make back their money in the materials. Um, and so, uh, let's see, I just reminded myself of a to-do. Um, uh, and so the materials are much more expensive than the base material cost. Um, a big one is supports, that when you 3D print with an overhang, you need to support it. So simple 3D printers grow a support you need to pull away. And typically there's some post-processing for that surface. More advanced ones have removable supports that needs another machine to do it. Um, when you're done, typically there's some post-processing. So for example, for printing with filaments, you have lots of beads of filament, not a smooth surface. And so this, for example, is a coating material to remove that. For um, uh, laser uh, stereolithography, you have a gooey part that you need to set it. Um, for the powder beds, often there's a post-processing to set them. Then a big one is the design rules. And this is a common both beginner mistake and misunderstanding. So when you're 3D printing, the most common process uses a, a bead of a filament that you're extruding. And so consider, for example, a sharp wedge like that in your design. If you 3D print this, you'll have one bead of filament here, one here, maybe two here, then three here. And when you print that, um, this won't work. These will right away just rip off and you'll get a shredded edge. So you can't 3D print, depending on the process, a sharp corner. You need to facet the corner so it has enough beads of filament so it holds together. Likewise, um, when you print, um, if you have a wall, if the wall is too thin, you'll, you'll line up the filament, but it doesn't have integrity and it shreds and falls apart. So there's a minimum wall thickness for the design to be stable. Um, when you, uh, make a note, um, uh, when you have two parts, so if this is filled and this is filled, the bead doesn't go exactly where you want it to. And so there's a minimum clearance. And if the wall is closer than that clearance, it'll stick together. And so if you want to have a part move in another part, there's a gap. And if you get smaller than the gap, um, it'll stick together. Um, if you 3D print a cube, because of things like thermal shrinkage and drift, the dimensions of the cube don't exactly match what you design. There's some drift in the process. Again, this uh, depends on the machine. Um, supports have to be removed 
Um, there's an angle you can build without supports, depending on the machine, um, that angle varies. And so to a beginner, you just have a design and you say print, but there's actually a lot of design rules that go into making good use of your printer. Really advanced 3D printing, you actually in detail plan the path of the filament. Um, most 3D printing is anisotropic. Um, if we take, uh, if we take take this duck, and if you look, oops, sorry ducks, um, if we take this duck, and if you look closely, you'll see the lines of the filament, which means um, this is much weaker in tension in this direction than in this direction. The mechanical properties depend on the orientation of the part. Um, and then another note is typically you don't want to make the part solid, which uses a huge amount of material and takes much longer. You want to fill the interior as a porous structure. And so you make the surface, but you make a pattern inside and that reduces the material you use and increases uh, the building time. Um, so all of those are limitations. And um, so if I go back to this link, this is an example of a test problem that has a varying slope, has varying widths, tabs, has varying slots, has varying clearances. And the first assignment this week to do as a group is test the design rules of your printer. So how sharp a corner can you make? How thin a wall can you make? How small a gap can you make? How does the dimension of the actual part relate to the dimension of the part you designed? Uh, for each of your printers, test those design rules before you do your project. And you'll, you'll be surprised. It's not a magic teleporter. They have a range of design limitations. And so there, there's a, you can design your own or there's a number of test parts. Learn about the design rules of your printer. So there are many 3D printing processes. This is a link to one of the vendors, Shapeways. And Shapeways is a good resource. Um, they list they have lots of different processes they offer. It's a good guide through them. So the first process developed was stereolithography, and that uses a laser to cure a resin. Um, STL is, um, I'd say, the highest resolution with one variant. So it's very, very high resolution. Um, it's messy. So uh, former students started form labs and um, their early marketing images um, showed the, the, the printer like this in an office. And they've stopped doing that because the reality is these are messy, gooey machines. There's a lot of resin. Um, it's not clean to use in a office setting, you need to use it in a workspace that can handle messy, um, gooey stuff. But STL um, is highest resolution and the materials are expanding, but it has to be a photo curable polymer. 
far and away the most common DIY style printing is uh, fused deposition molding. This was invented by um, Stratasys, by Scott Crump. Um, Ohad works for them, he'll join next week. In this one, you heat a filament and it's just above its melting temperature and then it's going into a chamber just below the melting temperature and the filament sticks. And so that's by far the most common one. Um, there's a number of variants. Um, along with plastic, you can extrude other stuff. This is an interesting person at Berkeley, Ron Rail, and he makes gantries, and instead of printing plastic, um, he extrudes clays that he then glazes. And so he makes these beautiful clay structures by making a bead of a clay filament. Um, uh, and a colleague at MIT, Neri Oxman, um, has had a project for many years um, to make uh, 3D printers and they extrude a bead of molten glass at a higher temperature uh, to make glass structures. Um, a colleague at USC, Derek Kajnevis, um, he works on really large scale um, structural printing. And what he does is he extrudes concrete. And one of the tricks he does is instead of just a bead, because he wants to move a lot of material. Um, he has the nozzle extruding the concrete out, but he has a robotic um, trowel here, a little surface where he can vary the angle. And so what he's doing is, if you look at the duck, it's just lots of beads. Um, to make the layer thicker, he has, he extrudes the bead, but he has a, a, a little trowel that controls the surface of it. And so he can have a thick bead, but with a smooth surface. And so that's called uh, contour crafting. So those are all versions of, of fused deposition molding. Um, there are ink jetting processes. This was originally invented by a colleague at MIT um, what these do is they have a powder and then they have a head and the head makes droplets of ink. One of the nice things about this one is it can be in color because you can have colored ink. Um, another nice part of this process is you spread a layer of powder and then you, you selectively bind it with drops of ink. Then you spread another layer but if you have an overhang, when you're done, there's powder everywhere and you just pull the part out. So these powder bed processes automatically make their own supports with the unused powder. Um, on the other hand, with the inkjet, it's very weakly bound. So these parts look good, but they don't have good structural properties. Uh, these you typically post-process by infusing a glue in it, like a super glue, cyanoacrylate but they don't have good structural properties. Um, these are um, uh, among the most successful processes now. What these do is they have a head that has, it's like an inkjet printing head, but the drops put out little droplets of material. Um, in one version, it's a molten material. In another version, it's a resin you need to cure. Um, these can be among the highest resolution. 
And the other nice thing about these is you can have heads with more than one material. And so th this is a really nice material for multi-material printing. Um, these are very expensive commercially. These are hundred or $200,000 machines. And there aren't yet DIY versions because there's quite sophisticated micro machining to make the heads that make the droplets. And so this is ripe for turning into a do-it-yourself machine. There's some efforts at that, but right now these are among the most expensive printers. This is an amusing process. Um, what this one does is it cuts out sheets of paper. You, you print on the paper, you cut out the paper, and you laminate it. So the mechanical properties are not very good at all. But what's nice is the, the, the imaging is the best of all because it's actually 2D printing turned into 3D printing, but it's, it's bound sheets of paper. So again, this is good to make things that look nice. Uh, it's not very good for structural properties. Uh, the most expensive machines today, um, laser center. So um, the, oh, let's see. Um, uh, I'm going to change, a, a good link for this one is uh, EOS makes laser center systems. And so what these do is they spread a metal powder and then a very powerful laser fuses it. Um, these are very expensive. These go up to like $500,000, even a million dollars. And you need a whole lab just for them. The powders are dangerous. Ventilation is hazardous. Um, they need a lot of post-processing. But these can make really complex spaces, parts for aerospace alloys. And so um, this is what's used for things like uh, turbine blades or fuel injectors um, by laser sintering. Um, uh, Form Labs is just releasing um, uh, a much lower cost uh, nylon laser sintering. And so this is aiming to bring the cost down. It's still much more than simple fused deposition molding. This is around $10,000 to do uh, laser sintering in nylon. And you know, it's an interesting material for structural properties. And one of the most interesting parts of this, again, is for very complex geometries, you don't need supports because there's powder everywhere that builds the support. So this is really good for geometrical complexity. To, um, uh, sorry, Neil, to, um, for basically, because one of the things that um, SLS is good for, indeed, as you mentioned, is for metal printing. Um, and I, I just heard of another um, thing that apparently is coming up. That is um, actually a printer almost, it, it takes off almost the same approach, but it's, uh, what it does, it uh, lays down layers of, so it basically it makes a, um, a form with the metal already inside. So it puts metal granulate inside with um, thinner granulate on the outside shell, shell and then thicker granulate on the inside. And you basically, you build a, um, uh, I say you build a sand mold. It prints a sand mold with the metal inside. So you just take the entire thing, put it into the oven, and you got your metal part. Interesting. I'll come back and show you something that's similar to that in a minute. Um, oh. So carbon has gotten a lot of attention. Um, it, this is fairly expensive printers. Um, it's fast. And what's interesting about their process is it's a two-part um, 
they print a material, but it's a thermoset, meaning when they've printed it, it's in the right place, but it's not in the final step. You take it out of the printer and then you heat it and then that, that sets the material. And so it's similar to, um, there's a process called uh, metal um, injection molding, MIM. And in uh, MIM, what you do is you have metal in a binder, you, you shoot it into the mold, but then you have to cook it to actually make the part. And so it's a two-step process where you place the material and then you fire the material. And so that's what that process does. Um, the highest resolution of all right now is, um, this is, for example, one millimeter scale bar. These are really micro parts. And the way that's done is instead of having one laser beam focused, you have two laser beams. And so for the, um, for normal stereolithography, um, the, the size of the volume comes from the focus of the laser beam. Um, there's an energy of the transition to set the material. And so in two photon, what you do is you have a process that needs two photons added together to add up to that energy, but you, you can send them in from different directions. And by doing that, you can define a much tighter volume. And so that's used for the very highest resolution printing. Um, and then this is a meeting I ran a few years ago on the idea of not printing, but assembling. And a lot of the research in my lab at MIT is around assemblers, not printers, to make micro parts that you can assemble into three-dimensional structures. Um, and I had shown um, in the introductory lecture on We go further out in the roadmap. Um, here, I had shown work we're doing on making self-reproducing assemblers by making micro Lego and functional materials where it comes by assembling the material properties. And this is still very much basic research with very expensive machines, learning how to do it, eventually aiming at your lab has a feedstock of these micro parts and assembler to place them, replacing all of this, but still many years to come on that. So machines. Um, every year Make Magazine does a 3D printer shootout um, and the, the, there's the machine of the week that they try to sh sort through. Um, one of the earliest and still most interesting ones is RepRap. Um, and many different machines can trace their lineage back to RepRap. Um, what's amusing about RepRap is um, let's see, uh, the, the goal of RepRap was for the machine to make itself. And so it was really based on the machine to make more machines. And so Adrian was less interested in useful 3D printing he was much more excited about viral 3D printing, self-reproducing. But along the way, this is Adrian, um, what was developed for RepRap became the basis of many other machines. So um, Ultimaker grew out of um, uh, Fab Lab in the Netherlands. 
and some of its lineage traces back to RepRap. And what I've linked here is Ultimaker, you know, as the product, but one of the founders was Eurus, and he's really pushed the limits. And so this is a, a wonderful project where he put a series of <coughs> Ultimakers, <coughs> excuse me, on gantries, so the printer itself can move and it print something bigger than itself. And then he translated that along. And so if you keep that running for quite a while, you end up printing a life-size elephant. And so Ultimaker is a commercial product, but it was really inspired by making machines accessible to tinker with like that. Um, MakerBot was started by Bree Pettis, um, sold to, um, let's see, early MakerBots were terrible mechanical design. Bree happily admits that he was doing on-the-job education in mechanical engineering. Um, it started as an open project, somewhat controversially became less open, but in along the way it was much better mechanically designed, um, sold the Stratasys, and then he left and now runs uh, Bantam Tools. Um, right now, this is my favorite entry-level 3D printer, the Wax. I have 10 of these. Um, uh, the reason I like this one so much is uh, Sindo as a company, it's a Korean company, and their main business isn't this. They make um, engines, print engines for 2D copiers in huge volumes. So their main business is um, not simply the copier, but just the engine that goes into the copier that many other people use, and they make these in giant volumes. And so they looked at the 3D printing market and said, boy, almost all of those printers are terrible. And so it's a $1,000 machine. Um, you feed it with a cartridge, but um, you can change the material in the cartridge. And in fact, they did something recently for us. They love Fab Labs. And so they have a special version of the firmware that um, I just made a note to remind myself that they're going to release to Fab Labs that is like an experimental version to make it easier to change the material. So you put it in the cartridge that makes it easy to change the material, but you can, you can, you don't have to buy their material, you can put in your own material. But then what's nice is it automatically feeds itself, it checks its adjustments, um, it's enclosed so it heats the volume to control the temperature, it monitors what it's doing, it has a website built in with a camera, and so, this is one of the only entry-level printers I've found that just works like an appliance. It actually, contrary to what I said, almost always you just send a job and it just works. The output is typical FDM, but it's so reliable and so, so relatively inexpensive that again, you know, I, I keep adding more and more in my lab and they keep getting filled. And so we're right now running about 10 of these. And they're really good friends of Fab Labs. And so, they have another version that has two heads that's developing removable supports. They have another version coming with an even bigger build volume. Um, so I'm very fond of these. Uh, that's for uh, Sindo. Uh, Neil, uh, are the filament or cartridge are open uh, to be refilled yeah. by? So that's what I was referring to. So you can open, there, there's two steps to answering your question. Um, you can open the cartridge and put in material. 
yes, but the cartridge has a little chip that identifies itself. And right now you need to reuse the chip in the cartridge and it's there so the cartridge can tell the printer the material. Um, right now what you can't yet do, uh, you can but you don't have it yet. What you can't yet do is actually program the chip to identify a different material. And that's what they've developed for us. They have a special version of their software that not only lets you open the cartridge and change the material, but change the programming in the cartridge. And so um, uh, I'll work with them to release it to the Fab Labs. Their concern is a good one. Um, once you do that, they lose the quality control, which is so nice about the machine. And so just the special software says, it's up to you that make sure this works. It might work terribly, we're not in control, but they're gonna release that special firmware for the machine. So today you can change the material. They'll release software that lets you change the programming in the cartridge also. Uh, Neil, do you have any estimate on when that will be available? Because I have, I think I have like 10 of them too. So um, I'm very interested. Yeah, right away. I actually, I'm making a note because I forgot to check with them before this class. They've already developed it. I've been testing it in my lab. Um, and uh, it, it's ready to be released. I'll check with them on that. Yeah, these are really oh, thank, surprising. Thank you. you know, when I complain about 3D printers, uh, I have almost all these kinds of printers in my lab at MIT, and these have been kind of taking over. Just more and more work gets sucked up to them because they're so predictable. Yeah, so that'll be very soon. It exists, I just need to get it rolled out. Thank you. Okay. Um, Here's a company started by a mix of colleagues and um, some former students from MIT. Desktop Metal is a much lower cost, tens of thousands of dollars metal process. And this is another example of what I was describing. You, it's similar to metal injection molding. You print the metal in a process with a binder, but it's not done yet. And then you take it out of the printer and you put it into the machine that fires it. And then when you fire it, the metal sticks together and you get a solid metal part. So this is just coming on the market as a lower cost metal printing process. And their quality has been improving quite a bit. Um, uh, let's see, I don't know if they have pictures. Um, the, the quality of the metal parts was so-so to start and has gotten really much better um, for lower cost metal printing. Um, Form Labs was started by former students, and Form Labs was driven by high resolution for the masses. And so it's a few thousand dollars stereolithography machine. Um, uh, they did a fun project recently. Um, this got a lot of attention. Uh, they print the world's largest lens in, it, it's, uh, in Times Square with a whole farm of these, and to do that, um, one of their sort of semi-products is they have a farm of where a robot can run a whole line of these to, to crank out uh, parts. So this is high resolution printing. It, it's messy. They're trying to clean it up with these machines, but it's a messy GUI. You'll see the pictures they have are now in a, in a lab, not an office, but very, very high resolution. Um, one of the best examples of this one is, um, there was a beautiful project done. Ah, great. I love this project. So um, 
60s. It was a stop motion movie. So here, here's the stop motion movie. And um, so let's, I want, I want to see the movie. So, so the movie looks like this. But it was done by printing every single frame of the movie. <laughs> every frame of the movie was a separate print on the printer. Um, so very high resolution, um, nice example. And then they're also, again, coming out. This is just coming on the market, a laser center machine around $10,000. That's uh, nylon they're targeting as a nice material that you, doesn't work well in FDM. Um, and then. There have been a number of generations of uh, printers made uh, in the machines that make project, and I'll be covering that uh, later in the semester in machine building. So for FDM, one of the interesting things that's happened is there's a lot of experimentation now. So Protopasta is a really fun vendor that has things like um, uh, metal-infused uh, PLA that makes not really high-performance structural parts, but, you know, metal-looking parts or stretchy parts or, um, you know, really, you know, fiber-reinforced parts. Um, to use these, they can easily wear out printers. And so if you start playing with these, you typically need a tougher nozzle and better guides and maybe some lubrication. Uh, they have an interesting magnetic material. Um, one of my students, Sam, has been playing with trying to print motors out of that. And so there's a lot of invention in the um, filament. This is another um, vendor that has a lot of really interesting filaments. One of the things is things like twisty, flexible filaments. So there's filaments coming on the market with lots of different properties. There's lots of invention uh, with that. Really recommended. Um, and then we get to the vendors. Um, each of these printers has different properties. And so Shapeways is one, um, uh, Pinoco is one, Additively is one. Um, variants of rather than you having one of each of these printers, um, you can send, you can test them on your printer, but then you can send jobs out to more expensive printers that have materials you don't have access to. Um, and then uh, Moog is a company I work with um, that acquired another company for metal manufacturing, and they do some of the most advanced. Um, these are examples of what you can make with um, laser metal thinner for really complex aerospace parts. Um, and again, they don't come out directly like this. There's a lot of post-processing, and there's very severe design rules to make these work. But when you get all of that right, um, you can make these really complex metal parts. But again, these are you know, $500,000 scale printers, very expensive. So to 3D print, you make a file. The most common file format is STL, stereolithography. Um, it can be ASCII or binary, but the format is very simple. It's a list of triangles. So what's good and bad about STL is it's so simple. Um, a really stupid thing is STL doesn't contain units. It just has numbers. So when you go to the printer, you have to tell it the units of your file. It's a common beginner mistake to get that wrong. Um, 
but and then one note is the triangles there's what's called the right hand rule so there's three vertices and if your fingers curl in the direction of the vertices your thumb points in the outward direction and the printer needs to know that for what direction get is the inside and what is the outside but it's just a list of triangles so for those of you who have been playing with scripting one of the things you can do this week is don't even use a CAD tool. You can just write a program to generate triangles. And if you want to do something complex with a really algorithmic design, you can just write a program to make triangles. Beyond that, it's a bit of a mess. Um, uh, for printers that handle color, um, uh, CAD formats are typically used like OBJ. Um, uh, PLY is another version similar to STL, but with color. Um, DXF is a terrible format uh, for in 3D. It has, uh, I wouldn't go anywhere near printers with that. It has very messy history. Um, AMF is also kind of a mess. This is, oh, it's broken. Uh, AMF was an attempt to make a successor to STL. The problem with it is it's sort of like sausages. Everybody's putting something into it. And so it, it hasn't really converged as a successor to it. Um, antimony in Matt Keeters uses um, distance fields as a format. This is a much more interesting. So instead of triangles, you have a tree and the nodes of tree have weights and then the weights lets you interpolate the geometry. And so one of the things you can do with emerging research machines is instead of sending tri triangles to the machine, you actually send bit planes directly to the machine as a volume representation. And um, uh, finally, uh, not all, but most of these machines, the underlying language they speak is G codes. And I'll talk about more about that later. And a level, the lowest level below triangles is you actually send G codes directly to the machine. You actually calculate the path for the head directly. Um, and so the more open machines let you calculate your own toolpath uh, to tell it what to do. And one of the reasons to do that is there, um, with conventionally with 3D printing, if you have an overhang, you need to build it a layer at a time and you need to support this. Um, but there's some distance where if you just simply pull the filament, you can stretch the filament over a gap. You can just pull it into a void. And then instead of building from layer at a time, you can actually make a structure just by moving around in 3D space. And you can make really interesting structures by not going at a layer at a time, but by tracing the filament in 3D. But that's not really supported by any software. You have to write the G codes yourself for that. So for the assignment this week, I want you to make design. You design and print an object. It needs to be small, only a few centimeters to not use too much printer time. And the rule is it can't be made subtractively. And uh, to qualify that, it's one that's not easily made subtractively meaning it should have overhangs or nested features or part and part or something that makes the geometry so complex that a tool couldn't go in to make it. So for the design 
it's the same sort of tools but for it. You could use fusion, um, uh, SolidWorks, Rhino, Grasshopper, Blender, all of those are fine. And all of those have good export to make um, STL. Once you've made your mesh, you need to turn it into a toolpath. And so um, Replicator um, is a tool. So what this is doing is, so here's the duck, but you need to make the path to plot out the duck. So Replicator G is one of the lineages. Skyneforge is another one. Um, Slicer is another one. Uh, Cura is another one. These are all versions of uh, slicers. They take your model, they put it into slices, they pick the path, um, and a lot of knowledge goes into them. Um, Sindo has its own, and it does something I really like, which is for the supports, rather than having points of contact, it actually makes a surface that you peel away, and so it has a nice support algorithm. Um, so you'll use one of these for your machine to calculate the um, path the printer takes. And these have a huge number of settings, but they have defaults to make it easy to start. And then finally, um, uh, Sketchfab um, and Thingiverse are resources for um, sharing these. And so these are environments to view 3D designs um, and to share 3D designs. Um, Again, for this week, I don't want you to download, I want you to design the object, but these are resources for sharing them. Okay, that's bits to atoms, that's printing. The other part of this week is the opposite. And so going uh, from turning a 3D object into a model. Uh, scanning it is a work in progress. It's uh, there's no perfect solution. Uh, not always, but typically when you scan, you get a bunch of points in 3D. Then typically you want to triangulate it. One of the problems with that is if the scan fails in places, you end up with holes with no information. And if you send it to the printer, it's hard for the printer to know what to do because there's no information there. So. A watertight 3D model is one that has no holes. That's it. It's easy when you're doing CAD. It's much harder when you're scanning. And also, often when you scan, you don't want just the geometry. You want the image of the surface so you can texture it. So there's no perfect solution. Um, uh, Probably the nicest tool is, um, this is one of the tools in my lab, and it's about a million dollar machine. And so it's an x-ray microscope. Um, this is a link to a class I teach on the math, and this talks about the math of tomography. And so um, here's something done on that instrument in my lab as a test, in fact, when we were buying it. This is the head of a housefly, it's an insect. And this is a 3D reconstruction of a housefly. And so it's imaging the inside as well as the outside down to one micron resolution. So super resolution, and it gives you the inside as well as the outside. So it, it's, it's the most powerful scanning tool. 
the problem is it's a million dollar research tools. Um, atomic force microscopes image atoms, but the way they do it is they drag a needle and it's so sharp it can see individual atoms. But you can use this on a bigger scale. So one way to scan is to make a probe and you pull it over the object. That's not good for complex geometry, but it's good for measuring height as a function of distance. And that ranges from atomic resolution to you can make these actually very inexpensively. Um, confocal is an interesting one. This is a research tool, but this is ripe for use in fab labs. Um, uh, interesting, Zeiss isn't answering. Um, so a confocal microscope This is the workhorse tool in many kinds of biology. What it does is it's confocal means there's a light source focused down to a point, and then there's a detector also focused to the same point. And then you physically scan that point around in space. And you can, if the object's translucent, it can be inside, but for a solid object, it's on the outside. And what you do is you move that confocal volume around and you see where it hits the object. So instead of scanning with a physical probe, you're scanning with light. And so this is a workhorse in biology, but a really nice project, and in fact, for the machine building week, you could do this, would be to make a optical 3D scanner based on confocal scanning. Um, the way um, brains are reconstructed. The tool of choice for brain wiring is, this is destructive, so don't, don't try this at home, but you take a brain, you, you fix it in a block, and you slice thin layers off, and then you image each slice at a time. And so what's interesting about that is if you have an object you can destroy, if you take the object, if you fix it in a block, and you mill or grind a layer and take a picture, mill or grind a layer and take a picture, and you keep milling it away, it actually gives you the inside as well as the outside, and it's free of many artifacts. And so if you can afford, afford to grind away your object, that's a great way to scan. Um, the reverse of that is what's colloquially called a milk scanner. And here what you do is if you have an opaque liquid like milk, you pour it over the object and you watch it disappear as the layer rises. And one of the most amusing things is people do that. So you lie in a little pool and you pour a dark liquid and you watch as you slowly get submerged and you can scan a person that way. And you just get a series of pictures and you, you add those slices together. Something that's easily neglected is this. This is an arm, and it's not automatic. Um, you, you touch the arm to different parts of the object. And so it's manual. But what's so nice about this is um, if you look at a, a, a Frank Geary building, like we heard from Bilbao, um, 
the way Frank Gehry makes these literally is in his in his shop architecture studio he'll, he'll, he'll do this okay here's the building he'll take some materials and he'll manipulate these into a sketch of the building as part of the workflow and then if you wanted to turn this into a building um, you don't really need to digitize every single part of it what you want to see is how it creases and how it folds and so people in a studio would then take one of these digitizing arms and measure all the important points. You don't need to know every point, you just need to know the important points. And so you use that to pull out the key parts of the geometry. And so that's a nice process if you wanna do, like in this image here, if you wanted to make that bracket, you don't need to scan every point of it, you just need to know the key parts of the bracket. They've been they've been using this same technique in car design like forever, right? Yeah. Where they they basically yep. mill out the form shape, then they put clay over it, and then they model the clay, and then they scan it again again using these yeah. type of and so scans. these digitizers are easily neglected. Um, it's an easy thing to make. It's a good fab project, and they're very handy for getting geometry. Um, Laser scanning, uh, this is one of the tools in my lab. This is a DIY version. Um, what these do is they scan a laser beam and then and from a different direction, they look to see where the laser is hitting. Um, so those are powerful. They can work over many different sizes. The problem with them is it's easy to fool them. If you have a fuzzy material, it might absorb the laser. If you have a shiny material, it might bounce off the laser. And so typically with these, you get a good scan of some parts, but you're missing some other parts. Um, LIDAR is lasers where you, um, uh, you scan the laser, but you modulate the laser to measure distance. And so that's not good up close for very high resolution. This is the tool of choice, for example, for scanning you know, geometry in, in buildings or mountains or, you know, or self-driving cars. Um, a variant is uh, next engine uses an array of emitters and then um, images that, again, it can do pretty good scans, but, but can be fooled. Um, this is, ooh. Um, I don't know why that might, this is in AWS that it gives an image. I'll, I'll, I'll check the um, time of flight. Um, something that's a very active research area is 3D imaging cameras. So cameras where each pixel is like a little optical radio receiver. So you send light out, um, but your light source, um, instead of being constant, the light waves um, are modulated so there's an amplitude envelope. Um, and then each pixel in the camera measures the phase as well as the amplitude. And so it's a camera that can actually measure distance. And there's a number of products emerging um, that's driving towards cell phones for augmented reality. And so those are going to be coming, those are still emerging on the market, but those are going to be coming down in the cost and becoming more common. So then we come to photogrammetry. This is now making a lot of progress and one of the most common ones. Um, this is an open source tool. Um, this is a tool, the current version of a tool in the Autodesk suite. 
Um, this is supported as part of the license in the class. Um, this is uh, an, another commercial version that's popular. Um, this is another open project. Um, what these all do is a version of, um, you take a camera, your phone, you take lots and lots of pictures, and then you do lots and lots of math. And the math typically runs in the cloud because there's so much not locally. Um, each picture, um, so you're looking at me. If I move a little bit and then I move a little bit more and then I move a little bit more, what you can do is take all those images of me moving and then solve a math problem to say, what is the geometry that fits all those images? And so if everything goes well, the math figures out where the camera was as well as what the geometry was. And so what's great about this is all you need is a camera to take pictures. Um, the problems with photogrammetry is sometimes it can't figure it out. And the more um, a serious problem is you get a scan and it looks like the object and it can look pretty good, but it's not metrology. It's not actually measuring coordinates. It's sort of trying to figure out what it should look like. And so the dimensions can actually be off by quite a bit. And so you can get fooled because you get something that looks kind of good. But if you actually look in detail, it's related to your object, but it's not exactly your object. So photogrammetry is easy to use. It's qualitative, um, but it's not metrology. Then um, speckle is um, related, but what you do is instead of just taking pictures, um, you illuminate the object with a speckle pattern and then image that as you move. And so that way you're controlling more. You're controlling the light going out as well as the image coming in. And so um, that was the basis for the connect that then after an interesting battle was opened up um, Reconstruct Me is software that goes with that. And right now, one of the nicest tools for 3D scanning, um, and I recommend this in the mix, is the 3D system Sense. And so um, this, let's see, th there's one back there, but the picture is fine. Um, this is a really nice object. It needs, a, there's some skill to use it, but this is a, the easiest scanner I know right now. What it does is, it sends out the speckle pattern, and then it takes the image, but then you use it like photogrammetry. So you move around the object. You don't need to control the position super precisely. Um, it gives you feedback, and then it takes all those images to reconstruct it. But it can do better than photogrammetry because it's controlling the illumination pattern. It's not just relying on the room light. So. Um, this is probably the easiest of all the scanning solutions right now, this approach. Um, there's skill, though. Um, you have to move smoothly and keep the distance. And so one of the tricks for this is um, for a person, um, keep the scanner still and rotate the person on a chair, for example. Or for an object, make a little turntable so you can smoothly rotate the object. Um, the smoother you can do the rotation, 
and the more steady you can keep the distance, the easier job the math have is working. Um, people who are good at this can just walk around somebody and give a beautiful scan. When you try to do it, it may keep failing. It's because they're skilled at moving smoothly and steadily at a constant distance. And the software gives you feedback on it. You can make it much easier by making just a little rig to move smoothly. But right now, this is, I'd say, the easiest of all of the scanning tools. And these are only a few hundred dollars. So if you don't have one, I recommend um, having that as an option in your lab. If you want to have like just people come in, sit down, and give them a scan, this is by far the easiest way. And it all runs locally. It doesn't need access to anything. Yeah, so those are really nice. Um, structured light is a research topic um, where, um, make a note, one more link for that, where what you do is you shine an illumination pattern on the object, and then you image it. These can have artifacts, but these can be very high resolution, again, because you control the illumination. One of the neat things you can do with these is, uh, this is a link to a vendor that makes little Pico projectors with lasers. And so um, to shine, the, what's nice is you don't need to focus them. It shines the structured light pattern out. And so this is something I, I did as an example a few years ago um, where, um, uh, the Pico projector is shining a pattern of stripes. And then you image those, and what you get is, um, well, you can see it in this picture here. You get the image with all of the stripes on it, and then the curvature of the stripe gives you the distance, and then you combine those um, into the image. Um, the problem with structured light is, the light has to get from the projector to the camera. And again, if the surface is fuzzy or if it's shiny, the light can go in the wrong direction and so you get artifacts with it. So the most interesting, I'd say, scanning of all right now is light stages. And so this is a colleague at USC slash Google. And so a light stage um, for um, Hollywood is, uh, um, these are giant facilities where you have a whole bunch of lights and a whole bunch of cameras. And the distinction in the light stage is with the structured light, you have the projector sending out light and then you have the um, camera imaging it. But if the light doesn't make it from the projector to the camera, you can't see it. Um, and so the light stage illuminates from every direction and it images from every direction. And so a, a beautiful example of that is, this is a research project he did um, where, so what you're gonna look here is, here's a set of cameras and then here's an arm with lots of lights on it. And here are shiny sunglasses. This is a horrible thing to scan optically because the light will just bounce off. So then what he's gonna do is take the shiny sunglasses and rather than having fixed lights, 
he's now going to spin the arm around, but the arm has addressable pixels. And so think of it as a sphere of light. And then he's going to make what are called spherical harmonics. He's going to make patterns where you continuously vary the light over this sphere of light. And then he's going to have the camera watch those patterns. And so it means each camera is seeing light from every possible direction. Then what he's going to do is in computer graphics, when you want to model an object, you model the texture, you model the diffuse scattering, you model the specular scattering, you model the subsurface scattering. There's about 10 light fields you need to make computer graphics. And so because he's measuring light from every single direction, what he can then do is separate all the parts of it. So he can separate diffuse versus specular scattering, shiny versus matte scattering. He can get the normal direction, um, and then he can get the texture roughness, and then he can combine all of that. And so all of the things that make 3D scanning hard optically, he's actually using them here. One of his really nice points is, even if you don't think you want to do computer graphics, unless you're measuring all of this, you can't measure the geometry, because the geometry gets mixed with these. And so you, you go beyond geometry scanning to do graphical scanning. And so now what he's showing is he's now re-rendering the object. And one of the most amusing of all is um, uh, at a, he did this with President Obama. And so he brought a light stage to the White House. And so instead of a presidential picture, so there's Paul, um, he's scanning um, Obama. And this was really, really, really sensitive. Um, the reason it's really, really sensitive is um, Paul has another project um, called the Digital Emily. Um, and so Emily was, was an actress, and they did this with her. And so they, they did the, the light stage with her. And let me get to this. Um, so here's Emily, and Emily's talking. Okay, so everything looks fine. So give this a minute. Okay, but there's Emily's diffuse scattering. There's her specular scattering. There's her wireframe. This isn't Emily, this is the model of Emily. Um, and so once you do this, the, the scan of Obama could make a virtual Obama that could say whatever you want. So it's sort of the soul of Obama. And in fact, maintaining the data was actually very, very sensitive of how do you make a, how do you control the photorealistic data of a president? Um, so one of the projects that I'll be working on is one of my assignments is an interesting way to make light stages is with LED monitors. They've gotten so cheap. So what you do is you make a box where all the walls are monitors, and then it lets you control. So the camera, by then varying the gradients of the light over the monitors, 
the camera can see light from every possible direction. And so whether it's specular, matte, diffuse, however it scatters, you can illuminate every possible direction into the camera. And I think that's gonna be a, a, um, a nice way to make light stages. The other issue is the math of light stages in Paul's paper is still kind of sketchy. It's still kind of hacky. And there's a lot of work to come on cleaning up the math for that. That's a research project. The final scanning is SLAM. <coughs> oh, that's right, Google, um, I think they ended the tango. Um, uh, SLAM is simultaneous, SLAM uh, tango. Um, uh, um, so tango, Ended. It's it's moving to this new pro that's right. It's moving to this new project AR Core. Um, but what this um, is is um, SLAM mapping. Um, SLAM is simultaneous localization and mapping, where it's like doing photogrammetry but in real time, where you're adaptively building a model as you're working, and. Um, this is at the heart of what you need for augmented reality. And so a lot of work is going into online real-time SLAM uh, to do AR augmentation. And it's, it's getting built into cell phones for all, all the applications of AR. And that's right, AR core is what Tango turned into. Okay, so this part is scan an object. And I would encourage trying as many of these as possible. No one wins. Each of these has strengths and weaknesses. If you want, you can print the object you scanned. That can be non-trivial to do the post-processing, and it still doesn't mean this part. Um, the design task this week is designing something you can't make subtractively. Um, then just scan anything to experiment with scanning. Okay, questions or comments? Yeah, hi, Nim. Can, can you hear us? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, it's a FabLab Digiscope here. And um, like we were, uh, we have some uh, a lot of different uh, material for uh, our printing machine here. And uh, we have uh, a conductive one. Yes. Conductive theater. Sorry, uh, conductive I'm theater. Uh, put, put, put the speakerphone down. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> okay. you, you don't need to hold it. And it's okay. Okay, cool. Sorry. Um, so we have some conductive material, and we were uh, we, we wanted to try to make some um, with a Ultimaker 3. We can yeah. print uh, multiple material. So yeah. we're, we wanted to try to embed uh, some uh, a printed 3D circuits into a 3D model. Yeah. So yeah. I, d I don't know if you have a good good example for this. Or yeah. So, yeah. So, um, well, first of all, first of all, the conductivity isn't great generally in this. You'll be able to like light a light or make you know, um, sense capacitance. Um, it. It, 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 it's a work in progress. They've been getting better, but I wouldn't at this moment's conductivity. Um, I would look at things, this, this, the wiring. So things where you don't having some resistance. Um, but the other note is um, those metal loaded elements put a lot of wear on the machine. 
And so one of my students, Sam, who's been playing with trying to print a motor, found he needed to change the nozzle to a much heavier duty nozzle. And in fact, he ended up adding an extra part to the machine, which was for lubrication, that he used a lubricant um, as the filament went in to help it move. Because he was finding that there are a lot of issues with irregularity in, in extruding the metal filament. And he had to kind of harden the, the filament pathway. Okay. What, is okay. it, what did you use as a lubricator? Oh, um, boy, I forget. I think it was just. I think it was just a silicone oil. I can check with him. Um, you know, I think it was just. Just yeah, you know, just a. Yeah, I think it was a silicone. But I, I'll double check with him. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll see. Yes, uh, he, he has some interesting results on that. I'll, um, I'll I'll check with him on that and link a page on what he was doing. Okay. Nice. Thank you. And, uh, okay. 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 So, reminder: uh, Monday's recitation is going to be really interesting. It's on maker education. K-12 education. Um, for this week, start with the group assignment. Learn about your printer's design rules. And then uh, you need a lot of time. This week, you're going to be limited by printer time. So get your designs in early and often to make good use of the printer. OK? Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. Yeah, this is Emily from yeah, the SOS system. system. Uh, so Sorry, I have uh, a. Hold on, Emily. Uh, there's. Uh, I'm, I'm going to mute Bob Wu. Uh, go ahead, Emily. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have a CT scan of my heart that I want to make yeah. a model with. Um, but the issue that I'm having is that it's really messy and it's really difficult to like separate oh. my heart from my or other organs. Okay, Emily, you, you, I skipped over something. Um, we're almost out of time. Let me cover this and then we have to end. But but I, I skipped over a really important link um, uh, when we're going through it. So um, these are three different programs, uh, Mesh Lab, um, NetFab and Mesh Mixer. Um, what all of these are designed to do is what you're describing. All of these start with a mesh, but then have to do with like, you want to pull some parts from other parts and close a hole and clean it up and then add some stuff to it. Um, and so one of the most useful tools in the workflow are these mesh editing programs. Um, they exist to do just what you're describing. I have some, now some, let's see, some of this is built into a, a tool like Blender that lives in Meshland, but um, these have all sorts of ways to slice and dice and process and separate and cut and filter. And um, a, a program like uh, MeshLab, um, uh, oh, see, I don't have it installed. I won't take time now. Has lots and lots of filters to like upsample, downsample, filter, interpolate, smooth, and so. Um, uh, play with those. That's exactly what they're for. Great. Thank you. Okay.
Good. Let's see. We're out of time. Bob, were you trying to say something? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about my project about uh, uh, similar like the first one. Uh, I will make a demo like this. It is uh, uh, made of SLA 3D printing. And yep. it, uh, it is, uh, the function is the same with the Arduino. And uh, in this cube, there is many wires. Um, okay. Can I show my screen? No, so, um, my screen? no, sorry, Bob, we're, we're out of time. Um, I'll make a note. Um, let, let's, uh, let's do this during the review. Um, class is over, we're past time. So I'll make a oh, note yeah. and next week during the review, we can start the review with you to pick up this conversation. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. So let's stop here. Um, get get going on your printers. You're, you're going to need all the time this week uh, with your printers running. Um, and next week, we'll both pick up with the people we missed, like T and Bob will pick up with your question during the review next week. And Ohad will also join us to next week. He has a lot to add to um, what I covered. Okay, happy scanning and printing. See you Monday if you come to the recitation and then Wednesday. Bye bye. Bye.